Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. It's a numbers game, and the best way of having numbers is by having a fantastic reputation of being a really talented individual. And why open a 100-seat restaurant off the bat when we can reputation-wise do exactly the same in a 25-seat restaurant, and it's just much easier to run? Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. How many articles have you read about the restaurant of the future? To me, it conjures visions of robot cooks and digital menus, but no one really talks about how big it is, or the steps the proprietor took to avoid the massive failure rate we've been saddled with in the past. More than anything, I think the restaurant of the future is sustainable and built to last a lifetime. Chef Ed Zeminski and Patricia Howard of Dame believe that too, and today they walk us through the bulletproof strategy they implemented to secure the future of their restaurant and their careers. I had left my job as the executive chef of Cherry Point, which is a two-star New York Times restaurant in Brooklyn, and we were working on opening the permanent restaurant, Dame, something that Patricia and I had been planning for maybe like two years or so. In the interim, we worked other jobs. So Patricia, she opened and operated a bakery with her partner, and I was in Mexico actually cooking at a hotel in, in Tulum as like a consultancy thing. Yeah, immediately before the pop-up, we were trying to raise capital to open the restaurant. And the pop-up sort of came about as a way, a more efficient way of raising capital than just two young restaurateurs in their 20s approaching a bunch of millionaires and saying like, hey, give us a few hundred thousand dollars. Even though we had relatively developed reputations in the New York restaurant scene, people are not, as you know, not particularly forthcoming with investing in restaurants. So we thought doing a pop-up was a smart way to show that we could be profitable and that our food was delicious and our restaurant was a good idea that was march 2020 so you know a lot a lot's happened <laughs> right. we did a pop-up in a coffee shop on the lower east side with no gas no real electricity either like no hood it was 10 people sitting around a counter i lit a charcoal grill out on allen street which is a big throughway in new york and like cooked over this open fire we got a little like house fan and put that on top of the grill so that it blew the smoke away from the customers just into the bank and it was like just patricia and i 10 people and i really like very european way of doing something like in the small everyone's leaning all over each other intimate like you really get the perspective of the chef and the beverage side of it too obviously that was about as uncovered friendly as it's possible to be and then the pandemic shut us down, as it did everyone else. Um, this is March 2020. And then I should say the restaurant was still going to be called Dame, but it was an English meat restaurant. as That was a cuisine I cooked at Cherry Point that won a fair number of accolades. So it made sense to continue with that. But because of the change in dining capabilities, it didn't make any sense when we reopened as a second pop-up after the pandemic in the summer of 2020 to be charging like $35 for a fancy, like, 
awful skewer or something. We were needed to put food in paper plates to make to go friendly. And the most to go friendly paper platey English thing is fish and chips. And then we started another pop up doing fish and chips, and from that grew the current iteration of Dame. So it's from there to here is obviously a lot's changed from opening like a little fish and chip pop up. That's like how we got to opening pop ups and what we were doing before. What was your motivation in going independent? What was it that you wanted to share that you thought was missing in the market? Well, I think we wanted to be the final say in decisions. And it's been somewhat frustrating for us working for other people. I think it's fair to say we contributed a lot to the business, but didn't see any of the reward because we weren't partners in the business. We were just employees. So we definitely wanted the final say in decisions. And we wanted to control, I think, our own narrative a little more. Yes, the money isn't great and the stress is through the roof and you're responsible for everything. But if you really plan on making a career out of this and doing it long term, I think you sort of benefit more by going out on your own long term than you do from staying under the umbrella of a restaurant group. It's just more fun running your own little intimate bistro. Yeah, we had every little detail planned out. And the only way to really execute all of those was to do it on our own and to be able to hire who we wanted, pay them what we thought was fair and cook the food that you buy at the market that morning and be able to put it on the menu. And I just wanted to be able to control everything, every aspect. From a business perspective, did you think that you could run a better business than you had seen? Did you think you could get to this point where it's profitable, where you are working a reasonable amount of hours and you are able to carve out a life for yourselves? Yes. We definitely knew going into whatever restaurant space we ended up signing, we knew we wanted it to be small. As you know, the upside of being a restaurateur is not really getting rich. No one's going to become a billionaire running a restaurant. What you can do, however, is use your reputation as a way of generating a great living for yourself and your family. So you can write books, you can sign endorsement deals, you can open licensing deals. Like Jean-Jules Longerickson has a house in the Bahamas and one in the Hamptons and stuff, not because he has opened all of these restaurants, but because he has 3% of the take from the 36 restaurants he has around the world. It's a numbers game, and the best way of having numbers is by having a fantastic reputation of being a really talented individual. And why open a 100 seat restaurant off the bat when we can reputation-wise do exactly the same in a 25-seat restaurant, and it's just much easier to run? I think that what you're describing, everybody's listening and going, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, post-pandemic, everybody's talking about a smaller footprint, and it's probably the future of the industry. But I mean... These were ideas that you guys had prior to the pandemic. And I'm wondering, did mentorship play a role in those choices? How did you know what to do? In America, a bigger is always better. In Europe, that's not true. I'm sure you've eaten around London or Paris or like cities in Europe. They're very small restaurants, all these great little places. So my background being English, I never really saw the need to have a large restaurant. Like it's quite a Parisian model. When you run a 100% 100% capacity. This is, I guess, something we had learned from working for other people before, too, and just witnessing how they maybe weren't doing it so well. Like, when you run at 100% capacity, it's very hard to lose money. Like, full restaurants should not. Yes, there's a lot of mismanagement. There's a lot of. Absolutely. There are bad restaurateurs, frankly, out there. But if you're running at 100%, you should be making money. Just make the restaurant small enough that you can guarantee you'll always be running at 100%. Someone asked me this. It's like, how do you project out these numbers? And I was like, well, we're on a busy street in the Greenwich Village. If I can't fill the restaurant one and a half times a night, then I'm in entirely the wrong business. Like it's a 25 seat restaurant, and our business model shows us making money at 40 covers a night, which is, as you know, that's a very small number of people. 
So mostly because of the European model that we, we first off, we like eating at those restaurants more than we like eating at mega restaurants anyway. And a little bit like the first chef I ever worked for in London, this beautiful restaurant, it's not around anymore. It's called Pit Q. It was kind of like ours. Like Tom, who's the owner of that, he's been a big mentor to me. We had met with people we wanted to be our mentors and they were like, our advice is not to open a restaurant, especially at your age. Go back and keep working for other people. Like you have way too much that you still need to learn. Don't open a restaurant right now. And we're like, okay, how can we still open a restaurant, still be our own bosses, but do it with as low risk as possible? Literally the worst advice we'd ever receive. Like anyone, (laughs) if someone's already don't ever, don't listen to them. Like it's not that hard. (laughs) We took a bus to DC two summers ago and ate at all the places we wanted to go to in DC. And we went to Bad Saint, super tiny restaurant. They didn't take reservations. There's a line down the block at five o'clock when they open and tiny staff. They're on Bon Appetit's hot tin list when that was still a thing that mattered. And I think we really wanted to emulate that model. So when we were looking for restaurant spaces back in New York, we kept referencing like, could we do the bad saint thing here where it's always full People are there in and out in like an hour and a half. You have a great time. It feels like a party. You're sitting close to the couple next to you, interacting with a bunch of different staff members, watching the people in the kitchen. You're sitting at a counter, like all these things we really vibed with there and tried to recreate. Let's go back to the pop-up for a minute. I've opened several restaurants myself and there's this learning period where it's really no different than children, right? Like you open this restaurant and you tell the world what it's going to be. And then the world walks in and tells you exactly what your restaurant's going to be. And you land somewhere in the middle. And so I'm wondering what lessons did you learn from doing that pop-up that you took into the brick and mortar? Well, we learned that people like fish and chips. <laughs> that I honestly was surprised. <laughs> they didn't like them so much. I didn't think it was part of the American diet, but I was very wrong about that. We work very hard on the restaurant, of course, but nothing's perfect, as you alluded to. So I think we learned how much time we need to adapt to situations, and we became more adaptable because we had to change so much in the summer of 2020. So I think that was a really valuable lesson that I think will follow us through our careers, or hopefully expand and open more businesses. Being able to shapeshift so quickly was a very useful thing. We saw so many restaurants right in the beginning of March 2020. They just tried to put their existing menu into to-go boxes. And that's not what people at home worried for their health and their families and their being able to pay rent. Like People don't want fancy New York City restaurant food in a to-go box for $50 at home. So we very quickly were able to watch and listen and plan our business around what we saw customers wanting. And we watched a lot of restaurants struggle to do that and struggle to change quickly and really be smart about what's going to sell right now. And I guess like bigger restaurants or more established restaurants or more stubborn restaurants, whatever it is that was blocking them from making what people actually wanted, I hope will always be nimble and responsive to changing customer desires, because that's how we're going to actually stick around. 
And we became different businesses at different times of the year based on the weather and what people were cooking at home and how we could help the neighborhood. And hopefully that's something that sticks with us forever. How did you adapt so quickly to the volume, though? I mean, to open up and say, oh, man, I hope we do 20 orders a day and flash to you're plowing through 150 pounds of fish on a weekend. How did you scale up? How did you scale up so quickly without seeing a degradation in the quality of the food? I worked a lot, honestly. <laughs> like you just get there earlier in the day. You instead of breaking down two fish, you break down ten. We're lucky we had Dago, who's a old friend and cook I've worked with for many years. We started with just the two of us, and then he came on board. So that was a quick change. I think it's the help of our friends, and we're very lucky that we have a close group of friends who work in restaurants and have followed us throughout our careers, who could jump in and help us. And everyone just pitched in. Was, a lot of them were out of work, so you know convenient that when the New Yorker article came out, we really saw a huge jump in demand after that article came out because it was in the winter. So we had already had like a dip in people weren't going outside as much. We were doing our provisions shop and then that article came out. So we were just able to call upon our friends and now they're our dame, they're real employees. Let's talk about fish and chips specifically. I've got to believe that you could probably throw a rock in any direction in New York and hit a place with fish and chips on the menu. Why your fish and chips? How did that become a phenomenon? What serendipitous things collided that you think turned your cuisine, such a limited menu, into a cultural phenomenon? I think we got very lucky. The timing was people were looking for food that was casual and to go friendly and we were cooking something that was casual and to go friendly. I do think it's better than most fish and chips you can find. Well, I think it's better than all fish and chips you can find, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> we're in a community or in a neighborhood with a large English community too. So that sort of got us up and running and then it's fried fish and potatoes in summer and we have worked on this recipe at previous restaurants for years. It just never really been part of the way I saw the culinary vision going. I guess we put in work beforehand that we could quickly call upon and to get a leg up on that was great and i think a few people came and you know running a restaurant is about having people come back so they enjoyed their fish and chips and it was cool to see i think for them to see the owners there every day running around chatting to them we still are very personally involved with the restaurant we're there every day it doesn't open without us and the customers can see that i think that's probably part of our success and why they feel like it's more than just some fried fish in a little box to take home. It's, you know, something that matters a lot to us personally. So I think that explains, I think, some of it. But, but luck is a big part, too. You know, if we'd done it in a different neighborhood a month earlier, a month later, there's no guarantee it would have been the same product could have been unsuccessful. Like every day, there are thousands of great restaurants that go under because they just were unlucky. I obviously we worked very hard at it, too. And I think we brought a degree of talent and commitment to it, but luck can't be overlooked. Let's talk about pricing. It's been a central focus for the last 15 or 16 months in the industry. I can speak for my own business as well, is that we were always super fragile because we weren't charging enough to earn enough to make sure that good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, that we were able to survive in a really sustainable way. When you guys priced out your menu, what were your goals in terms of profitability? Well, last summer we were giving all our profits away to charity. So we weren't expecting there to be much profit. Again, like we were really planning on 20 orders of fish and chips a day. And we weren't sure how long we would be in the space. It was a week to week agreement with the leaseholder. And we paid her 25% of our 
revenue as our rent. So we didn't have a fixed rent and you, know, you just based it on Hake and paying our one employee. Yeah. And well, yeah, you know, the industry standards are a little different when you're so small. So like, as you know, like an industry standard, if you keep your food cost around 25%, your labor cost between 30 and 35%, your rent cost of eight to 10%. Then you should be making once you add in all the other like the utilities, the insurance, all that stuff. That's another fifteen twenty percent. If you're lucky, you come out with a ten percent profit margin. That's good. Twenty percent, like I think Alinea says, they run a twenty to twenty five percent profit margin. That's amazing. And a lot of restaurants say they run two percent profit margins. That's very bad. That's not sustainable. So we tried to have it hover around ten percent, but that was more when we started this restaurant, like the new one that we have a ten year lease for. And that we have investors and the responsibility to make money here to pay them back. We like broke it down to that, that sense. But the pop up, he's right. Like, we just, oh, hate costs this much. Like, let's charge this much for it. And, you I know, I think we started at 18 or something and then went up to 20 and stayed at 20 for the year. And that's really the question. Like, with a brick and mortar, 10% is not high. It's certainly high relative to the industry standard, which is somewhere around 6%. But coming out of a global pandemic, with all of this wind at your back, why not shoot for 15% or 20% and just see if the market will bear it? I think it comes back to something we said at the beginning of this interview, where we're not really here to profit maximize the restaurant. We wanted to profit maximize our lives and, and the restaurant, we would be doing a lot of things differently. Like we could buy cheaper fish and sell it for more money, for sure. We could live off our reputation at this point if we wanted to. But it's about building a community and, and people who will come back to the restaurant for the next 10, 20, 30 years, like building people who will eat at Dame restaurant throughout their lifespan because they know it's affordable and delicious. And like trying to find that price quality ratio and be, this is where we apply our individual talent as a chef or a restaurateur. Everyone buys food that costs a certain amount of money. And there's a range of what you can sell it for unless you're a three Michelin star restaurant or have a huge reputation behind you. Everyone's sort of in the, 15 to 25 appetizers and 25 to 40 entrees kind of thing. And we want to make sure our food is as delicious as it possibly can be within that price range because long-term, people coming back to the restaurant, I think it's probably good try and push for a 20% um, margin, but it would be short-lived because everyone would come once, be like, this is good, but it's not worth $45 for a fish and chips, and then not come back. Whereas instead, to have a 10% margin long-term, year after year after year, that's probably for us more sustainable it's little tweaks to make ourselves slightly more profitable like okay can we get an extra order out of this piece of fish can we raise the martinis a dollar kind of thing is only in response to the needs of the business if because we're making a higher profit margin we can provide growth opportunities for our employees then it's worth doing however right now as i'm sure you're aware food prices have skyrocketed so we do have to increase menu prices because of that, just to maintain the margin. But it's crazy. We're paying like double what we were paying for Hake when we're doing a pop-up. We try to be as transparent as possible. Like We're going to have to raise the price of the fish and chips this week because Hake is insanely expensive. All of the seafood right now is like double what it started. Last, we last summer when we were purchasing fish, it's the same fish as Hake from Cape Cod, like Massachusetts area, down to New Jersey is where they run used to be between 450 and 550 a pound. That was like, if it ever got up to 550 a pound, I would be on the phone with my fish purveyor and be like, come on, that's a bit steep. And of course, they don't really control the price. It's set by market. 
supply and demand thing. And now I'll take us seven fifty a pound. If I get it under seven dollars, I'm like thrilled. This is a recent development, so prices have to go up because of that to maintain the margin. The beauty of owning your own place is that you actually get to live your values and nobody can really tell you no. You guys came out guns blazing, even in like the first articles I read about the location, saying that you wanted to work to fix wage inequality, at the very least within the four walls of your own restaurant. Can you talk about those efforts and how it's worked to help you lure talent and retain the talent you currently have in the restaurant? Yeah, so far it's worked great. And we're lucky that all the talent we have at the restaurant is that group of people that have helped us through the pop-up and our core friends. So we have less than 10 full-time employees, I think like six or something. We have Dago. His uncle is the dishwasher, like my sous chef and very old friends, Ayla and Duncan, and then their partners, so they're like, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend they both work at the restaurant too so it's like just a very small family but it was always insane to me that as, as a chef as a cook coming up that we would be in the kitchen working 12 14 hour days you know getting there before the servers leaving after them scrubbing the grill producing all the food and then the cooks would go home with 150 200 a day and then the servers would go home with five six hundred dollars a day it just seemed like so corrupt and the restaurants would always tell the front of house, like, don't open your paycheck near the cooks. Don't tell them how much you make because they were benefiting from the restaurant and the cooks weren't. And of course, there's like, at least in New York, like a lot of the cooks are undocumented immigrants and the front of house are aspiring Broadway actors. So I think it's a bit of like institutionalized racism here that like kicks the servers like kicks the cooks to the back and be like, well, you guys just make the food in the back. You guys don't deserve to make the money. The servers are the ones selling all the food. So our solution to this was just to have the cooks become the servers. Because honestly, I do not think it's that hard. We're not trying to win. Not at our level. Yeah. We're not trying to win like three Michelin stars. Like there's no tablecloths and there's no jackets and you don't have to like pour wine from one side. It's like, all right, what do you want? I'll go bring that in for you. You make sure you clear the table and the water's topped up. You make sure someone has a clean napkin. You make sure you're treating them with respect and guiding them through the menu, which, by the way, cooks are more qualified to do than service anyway. You make sure that you know a little bit about the wine list, but I write the wine list. And if someone really wants in detail conversation about it, they can come and talk to me or I can go and talk to them. So partly to allow our cooks to be servers and to be in the tip pool, we made the style of service simple. That was definitely an active decision on our part to not a spot like we also don't really like places that are too fancy and stuffy but we wanted more than just not liking it we wanted it to be a place where our kitchen could work front of house and share it and tips so that's how we did it it's important that we've acknowledged that not all restaurants can have the line cooks also be the servers like we're a very small team where are the level of service is possible for a line cook to do and we have a counter where the line cooks can they're cooking on the grill, but then they also pass the food and present it to the customer. They can pour their wine, pour their water. But there's a lot of regulations that prevent this from happening on a larger scale currently that we hope to change and other restaurateurs are working to change. But we just want to clarify that it doesn't work for all restaurants right now, especially in New York. There's legislation in place to prevent the back of house from being in the tip pool. But because we're such a small staff and our servers or our cooks can be on the floor and interacting with customers, they're allowed to be in the tip pool. What does growth look like for you guys? What are the goals for the next six months, 12 months, 24 months? The next six months, I guess, will be just to keep doing what we're doing and 
not go insane. Like we're taking two week holiday at the end of August and start of September to give everyone a chance to relax and recharge. And then we'll, that's part of our business plan going forward is to give everyone time off so they can feel like they're well rested and, and only work four days a week. I mean, I think it would be cool to have a little wine bar next door or down the street that would provide a growth opportunity for some of our cooks to go and like maybe take over that restaurant and run that as theirs and they would become partners in that business. And then whatever we do next door will depend upon the piece of real estate we find for it. But the next plan would be bringing the core members of the team into ownership positions and having them be part of that would then our company would grow to include their restaurant. That would be the goal. It's definitely on the horizon. We have talented people who we want to be a part of our company for a long time. And I think instead of just making them a head chef and running around, like what I said at the very start of this interview, like we want to align their incentives with the incentives of the business. Like we want them to benefit the more profitable the restaurant is, the more money they take home. That's the future of Dame as a restaurant group and as like an idea for how to better the restaurant industry. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are thousands of owners and operators listening now. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? For people who haven't opened their own restaurant yet and are thinking about it and are listening to this maybe for like, I don't know, tips or guidance and stuff, the most important thing I would say is to do it, to like start small and find a space that you can manage. And if you're passionate about opening a restaurant and really want to, like don't let someone telling you that it's difficult or that you can't stop you. We're first time restaurateurs in our 20s and we figured it out like, look up and down the street that you're planning on opening a restaurant on and look at all the food businesses there. Every single one of them felt at one point like they couldn't do it. So don't let that stop you. Like just work hard and pray that you're lucky. Maintain your sense of optimism about this because it's the worst industry in the world to be in if you're a pessimist. <laughs> it's like everything goes wrong all the time. You'd have to look on the bright side. That's Chef Ed Zemanski and Patricia Howard of Dame. For more on the restaurant, go to damenewyork.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.